Welcome to this week's Who Cares What's the Point, Season 2, Episode 2. And this week, uh, we're going to get straight into it. We're talking about the nocebo effect. You may well have heard of the placebo effect, but this week we're talking about a lesser known psychological effect which can influence our well-being. Don't forget, you can follow the show uh, at Saab, that's me, your host and producer, and also at WCWTP on Twitter. But on with the show for now. Okay, thank you for coming on the show, Rebecca. Um, I understand that you're a PhD student at King's College, is that right? Yeah, that's right, yeah. Uh, and you're interested in this idea of the nocebo effect. And I think a lot of our listeners will probably have heard of the placebo effect. So maybe you could just start off with that and then tell us something about why the nocebo effect is different and how. Yeah, so we all know what the placebo effect is, you know, it's the kind of positive outcomes or a health improvement after receiving kind of a sham exposure or a sham medicine. Um, whereas you don't tend to know a lot about the more kind of sinister side of the placebo effect, which is known as the nocebo. Um, and it's just essentially the opposite. So it's where we tend to get a noxious or an unpleasant symptoms in response to kind of a sham exposure or sham medicine. And um, I'm kind of interested in how these nocebo effects can actually kind of play in the course of people actually developing symptoms to their medicines and actually this might be because of the nocebo effect rather than actually due to the medication itself. So we get these negative effects of taking something that actually should be biologically inert or some intervention that actually that shouldn't have an effect but we experience negative consequences because of it. Yeah exactly yeah it's just kind of all to do with kind of these expectations and how these can actually go on to then make someone actually develop those symptoms kind of just showing how powerful these expectations can be so how did you get involved and interested in this subject area in the first place what's your interest to hear um, yeah, so it actually started before I started my PhD. So um, before that, I was studying for a master's in health psychology. And my now PhD supervisor, um, Dr. James Rubin, um, happened to be giving a guest lecture on one of my modules, which was um, on placebo and nocebo effects. And so, yeah, similarly, how I always knew about placebo effects, I hadn't really considered the kind of the more sinister side to it and kind of how strong this could actually be. Um, and so that kind of always kind of stuck in my mind as one of the really interesting lectures of, of the course. And luckily, near the end, when I was finishing my master's, there was an opportunity to apply for a PhD with James studying nocebo effects and specifically how we could try and prevent people from experiencing a nocebo response and so I applied for it and you know three three years later here I am so that's how I kind of got really interested into the subject and kind of my first kind of part of doing my PhD was this systematic review um, which uh, luckily got published um, which I'm really pleased about. That's right and uh, the listeners can get a, a a link to the review that you've done um uh, why why is it important this nocebo effect can you give us a few examples as to why it is that we should be considering um these negative consequences of things that shouldn't actually have an effect upon us why why is this important yeah so um for me we're kind of looking at the nocebo effects um to do with kind of active drugs or active medications so it doesn't always 
is have to be kind of a biologically inert substance. Um, so, for example, we all know that patients experience side effects from their medication, but what we don't all tend to know is that the majority of these side effects tend to be quite nonspecific, um, so that those that aren't always related to the pharmacological action of the drug, and they tend just, they're, they're the symptoms that tend just to happen to everyone in everyday life, such as feeling a bit tired, getting a headache, that kind of thing. And the evidence suggests that nocebo effects can significantly increase these nonspecific symptoms that people get from their medications. And obviously, this isn't, isn't nice for them. It results in distress. It's obviously quite a significant cost for health services because of the increased medication non-adherence. So a lot of medication would go wasted because of this. And then the extra treatment visits if people take aren't taking their medications as advised. And also the additional medicines that can end up being prescribed to treat these nocebo effects. So kind of that's how I got interested in kind of how we kind of combat these nocebo effects to do with kind of the more non-specific symptoms that people experience from their medications. So there's a few different things there then. So uh, you're saying that when people are taking medications that they can experience symptoms and then they may attribute those symptoms that would just probably be happen, happening anyway that many people exactly, experience them yeah. to the medication. And that can actually make them stop taking their medication because they want to reduce those symptoms which they think is being caused by that original medication. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And of course, this then results in a whole load of extra cost. And, and we kind of people aren't or maybe aren't so aware that a lot of these symptoms are just kind of people falsely misattributing them or to do with these expectations. It's not actually to do with the, the pharmacological action of the drug. Right. So one of the things then you mentioned there is that people have perhaps expectations around what the effects of a particular medicine might be. So yeah. tell us more about how that works. Um, yeah, so um, quite often um, patients will get these expectations um from either their doctor or their patient information leaflets that they get with their medications and can these can list like a whole range of potential side effects um, and this kind of just increases their expectations that that will happen if they take it and so um, what then happens is once they've taken the medication um, and patients will tend to look out for or notice kind of symptoms that they're feeling or sensations and kind of attribute them in line with their expectations and kind of ignore kind of inconsistent information um, and so it's just kind of um, playing on um, kind of trying to they're just basically looking out for this information to kind of confirm their expectations basically. So this is an interesting example of that confirmatory bias isn't it it's like you because you're expecting this you're looking out for it and then when you see yeah. it you attribute it to what you thought was the cause anyway so you end up in this little yeah. loop Exactly yeah mm. and yeah. we discount the the non confirmation uh, evidence that we may have in front of us Yeah um so we tend to kind of yeah, we don't kind of see that in, li in line. Anything that's not in line with our expectations tend to just kind of brush aside. Right. And so we get these expectations perhaps from our interaction with our doctors uh, or the health professional, from the patient information leaflet. Are, are there any other yeah. influences on that, like um, individual differences or perhaps talking with other people who aren't medical professionals? Can they be influential? Yeah. Um, so one of the other... Um, um, ways in which people can get these um, expectations is through like media um, reports so um, and news articles to do um, with uh, 
like um, that potential kind of um, side effects to this new drug. Um, so, for example, one of the ones we had in um, the UK was there's a quite a lot of um, negative press about this drug called Tamiflu, which was used as a prophylaxis um, during the swine flu pandemic. And there was a lot of reports of side effects to do with this um, drug called Tamiflu and people saying that even if they would be to be prescribed it because they're at risk, they still wouldn't take it because of these medications, which is not something you really want to hear in a public health crisis. Um, and basically the, the side effects reported during this time vastly exceeded what we expected from clinical trial data with the drug. And so it was thought that um, this kind of, kind of um, negative press from the media was driving these symptoms and these negative expectations. Um, and then there is kind of a hint to some kind of individual differences such as personality. So things like if you're pessimistic and could just tend to have like a negative outlook on what could happen, that kind of thing um, may make you more like to um, experience a nocebo effect as well. That's really interesting around this kind of media amping up of the um, number of yeah. symptoms that were reported. Um, what other um, things were you looking, were you interested in when you started your review? What were the other sorts of possible mechanisms of action for the nocebo effect? Um, so we kind of just um, left it open to kind of see what was in the literature. So we just wanted to get an overview of all the different kind of factors there were that studies had investigated in trying to predict whether someone would experience a nocebo effect or not um, so the kind of one of the main things obviously was expectations which came out of the literature but there's also um, um, stuff to do with kind of learning so you if you there's um, a lot of studies looked at kind of your previous experience with a, an exposure and that how that could um, then make you more likely to experience a nocebo response if you were to expose to it again and things like classical conditioning so if you learn if you associate symptoms with a certain exposure and then you get the exposure on its own you can then go on to develop the same symptoms again um so kind of this whole learning aspect as well was another kind of big part of the literature that came out and so there was also was there um uh, there's an idea around um perceived dosage as well so it's about the amount of the medicine or the drug that you've had people associate or have different ideas depending upon the amount that they think that they've had is that right yeah that's right so yeah we link that to kind of being due to kind of this expectation thing again and it was one we went we weren't really um didn't really think ahead that would come out of the review and um, but quite a lot of studies had looked at this so yeah it was just kind of those that kind of thought they were getting a higher dose of something even though it was just a placebo it was just an inert substance and um, were more likely to experience symptoms um and that kind of thing and um so yeah so so, so we kind of concluded that we should kind of also that doctors should also kind of bear in mind kind of patients dose expectations or what they perceive that they're getting and try and um, correct any unrealistic perceptions they may may have about how much they're getting of a medication so i'm jumping ahead of myself a bit here so i, I apologize for that um, but perhaps we can just take a step back and explain what a systematic review is because people may come across this um term quite a lot and it's sometimes appearing in the media as well what what does a systematic review mean how did you go about doing that in in simple terms um yeah so um basically it's um a review where you want to 
kind of answer a question by using kind of all the studies um, that are, is available in the literature that's relevant to your question um, by um, searching for them with um, certain defined kind of search term or words that you know will help bring back relevant articles um, and so you kind of develop a search strategy that you know is going to be kind of sensitive enough to find all the relative relevant articles that you need but also specific enough so you don't have a huge amount of irrelevant articles that then is kind of an unfeasible amount to go through and so kind of once you develop these search strategies you might need to kind of do a few um like tests with them piloting to see kind of what studies are coming back with them with the um search strategies and then once you've developed your search strategy you then um basically have to go through pretty much every article so first of all with all the results that you get you just kind of look through the the title and kind of the abstracts of the little summary they have in the article um, um, to see if it could be potentially relevant and then once you've kind of gone through all them you then have kind of an inclusion criteria so when you're reading through the full text you kind of make sure that they're kind of ticking off your inclusion criteria to be included in your review and so it's a very kind of systematic process you're going through it kind of um step by step and it's all set out in your protocol or in your um article so that realistically if anyone wanted to carry out your systematic review again in a few years time they'd know exactly what you did and how you did it and you'd basically be able to find the same results again um so it's just that's just basically in a nutshell yeah, what so the, a systematic review is exactly you're being very methodical and i think you summarized yeah. it nicely there at the end is that actually through writing up what it is and how you did it somebody else would be able to replicate that and come up with the same studies that you found yeah yeah, yeah. so once you've got those studies and you've refined them down um what did you notice about them in terms of um the range and also the quality as well and uh, of how they did their work because you're trying to synthesize all, all of what they've done so you, you want to try and compare apples uh, with apples rather than apples and oranges so how, how do you sort that out uh, yeah it was hard we did get quite a, a mix of of different different studies so st some studies will be looking at healthy volunteers and some studies will be looking at patients um and so it, it was kind of hard to kind of group them all together in the end we just decided to stick with kind of studies that kind of group them into different risk factor categories so kind of if they were looking at this kind of factor and how that contributes to a nocebo effect that could kind of go into one group um and so it so that, that's how we decided to group them in terms of the quality um a lot of them it was it was questionable so um a lot of the time studies they don't put enough information in their um article in their manuscript to be able to answer kind of a lot of the kind of quality check questions and also they might not necessarily have um a pre-published kind of protocol that you can go back and check to see if kind of what they said they were going to do is what they actually did um and so a lot of the times we we were kind of it was on an unclear kind of how they were on kind of a quality check item um and so this the studies that kind of did follow uh, the quality checks and were scoring kind of low risk of of bias on those kind of did stand out um as kind of few and far between um so yeah so it was it was difficult and we did make a note of that in the review that a lot of studies kind of failed on that point to kind of be as clear as they could be about kind of the quality and kind of the risk of bias in the studies.
you, you, there is this. Uh, there's several tools out there that you can use, isn't there, that, that assess yeah. that um, quality of risk. Um, so, that, and that's important because. You know, you, if you put rubbish into a review, you tend to get rubbish out. So you you really need to be quite careful around the quality of the articles that you allow yourself to include in the review. Yeah. So we we had um, so those that kind of scored as a, a high risk of a certain bias on one of the quality checks, we kind of made a note of in kind of our tables in the review and kind of kind of um, incorporated that into when we were going through the results to see kind of what kind of the study said was it kind of a high quality study so we could kind of be more have more confidence in that result or if it was more of a like a lower quality study and we should have more should be more questionable about what we can draw conclusion wise from that study how long did all this take you to do rebecca um it did it, it took a while so it was one of the first kind of large-scale systematic reviews i i'd done so it was challenging um i think the search strategy started in December. So I first entered in kind of the search strategy into databases in December 2014. And it, and I think I I submitted it to Health Psychology Journal in February 2016. Um, so it took about a year and two months. So, yeah, it took a while. Yeah, and that's interesting, isn't it? Because I think people underestimate the amount of time it takes to do something like this. And it, it wasn't like you were going out and, and doing experimental work. This was a collation and a review of work that was already existing out there. And it took you over a year to get that out. And then I think it was eventually published in December last year. Is that right? Yeah, so it had an online first in September, but it wasn't actually kind of, yeah, in, in the journal until December. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, a long process, but worth it in the end. It is. It is. It's it's definitely worth it because, like you say, there's not been anything um, done like this before. So let, let's get down to the the real um, crux of our conversation. What, what is it that, that you found in your review? What seemed to be the pivotal factors in influencing this nocebo effect? Um, yeah, so um, after kind of screening all the articles, we ended up with 89 studies that were kind of included in the final review. And these studies looked at kind of 14 different risk factor categories. Um, and these could have been experimentally manipulated. So, for example, um, the researcher could have influenced nocebo responses by suggesting different types of symptoms to expect. Or they could have been kind of baseline risk factor categories. So things that just tend to naturally occur within an individual, such as their personality character. And so out of these kind of 14 different risk factors, uh, we found the strongest and most consistent predictors of whether someone's going to experience a nocebo effect was if that they have a higher perceived dose of exposure, if they get explicit suggestions that the exposure is going to trigger any type of symptoms, um, also if they tend to observe other people experiencing symptoms as well from the exposure, and just also kind of their own kind of expectations they may have about the supposed kind of exposure that they're they're, they're receiving as well. Um, so those are kind of the main kind of risk factors that we found in, in this uh, review. So none of that seems particularly surprising. It kind of fits in line with what you were saying before, this idea that, you know, if if you have a suggestion that there may be some kind of symptom that may be um, um, 
derived from the medication or, or the intervention then you're more likely to experience that kind of a symptom yeah. if you see through social observation like perhaps media like you mentioned before then you're more likely um and then the yeah. idea that you have a higher dose as well that that seems to have yeah. uh, an impact as well um so who should care about this what's what's the relevance of this what's the what's the point of understanding these influences around the nocebo effect um, yeah, well, I think um, for this review especially, we, um, we were, I think the health services such as the NHS in the UK should definitely care about the findings because obviously a lot of money is spent as a result of these side effects that patients experience and the NHS may not be kind of fully aware that a lot of this money could be saved if you could try and reduce the side effects that occur as a result of this nocebo response. And in addition, kind of doctors as well should care about these findings. They might not be always aware of this nocebo effect concept. And so this paper could also kind of help educate them for them to also understand kind of how best to communicate with their patients and what kind of different risk factors there may, there may, may be for their patient to have a nocebo response to their medication. And I guess by looking at these risk factors, um, this paper can also help change things by helping the NHS to save money by providing kind of different ways in which we can develop evidence-based interventions to help mitigate these nocebo responses to medications in the future as well. I can definitely see that, particularly when you mentioned beforehand um, the idea that people may stop taking their medication as a result yeah. of um, experiencing symptoms and then thinking that these symptoms were caused by taking this medication. I can see why that would have um, a possible very significant clinical impact and then knock on cost effects for the health service. And, and then there's also the idea that people, doctors may prescribe further medication to help manage the side effects. And then you end exactly, up into yeah, this yeah. myriad of prescription drugs that people are taking, whereas actually there may be a psychological mechanism that could be mm -hmm. um, leveraged to try to stop this from occurring. Yeah. Have you, um, has there been any research done on the idea of uh, psychoeducation? Because often... Um, the idea of um, you know, alerting people to certain experiences that they may have. I'm particularly thinking about my sort of day job in disaster uh, mental health. Often there's this idea of um, psychological first aid where orienting people to the experiences that they may go through after going through a disaster. I'm wondering whether that's there are potential downsides of that by telling people you know expect to feel like this but you're going to feel okay i wonder if you're actually increasing the likelihood that people will experience that symptom um so in terms of kind of the, the disaster aspect as far as I'm, I'm aware i've not come across any study that's kind of lo looked at that but i can see where you're coming from and this this could obviously um be kind of a of a quite importance in disaster research if you kind of getting them to go through this experience and then it could actually end up kind of being of like a, a detriment to them for their mental health if they've had to go through this kind of um kind of expectation of how they might feel after such a disaster may occur but as far as i'm aware i haven't come across any research that's looked at that but i guess it's, it's an interesting side to it which i hadn't necessarily thought about before do you know if there's anything um, around this kind of psychoeducation um, 
field where you know doctors um, and how they explain um, symptoms and uh, but also these patient information leaflets have there been manipulations done on that in terms of how that may be framed differently and the impacts that that may have on people's experience of symptoms yeah so, so there's been a few studies uh, kind of looking at um, kind of how doctors should maybe kind of emphasize the treatment benefit rather than focusing like dwelling too much on the side effects of a medication um i think there was a study recently on that but i think it only looked at symptom expectations not actually if it affected actual symptom reporting and then there has been a few studies looking at um um framing inpatient information leaflets so trying to look at it a bit more positively positively in terms of the number of people that remain side effect free rather than the number of people that will get side effects and mm. um, so there's one in um, 1996 to do with I think it was a flu vaccine looking at how that um, influences symptom reporting to the vaccine um, using this kind of positive framing and it's also kind of an avenue that I'm looking down as well to do with my PhD as a possible way of trying to kind of mitigate these nocebo responses to medications as well. That's really interesting. The idea of framing and accentuating that positive um, part of the envelope, where you know this is this is the number of people that stayed symptom free, rather than these this is the number of people that experienced side effect yeah. symptoms. That's a really interesting way of framing it. In terms of positive advice for clinicians or patients, um, what else? How else can they um, perhaps change their own experience or risk of developing? Uh, side effect symptoms and attributing them to to the medication what what sort of if there were three things that you were going to advise a doctor to do what would they be um yeah so i think doctors can really help manage kind of the patient's expectations by kind of remaining positive emphasizing the benefit of the treatment and also kind of um maintaining kind of a positive relationship with their parent with their um, patient it goes a long way as well so if their um, patient has kind of confidence in their diagnosis and their treatment plan this confidence can then go a long way to help reducing these nocebo effects as well um and uh, so that's kind of what i think doctors and clinicians should be kind of focused on doing and i guess the other way as well is these patient information leaflets so about 70 percent of patients will read these leaflets if they're prescribed a new medication and the side effect section is the most commonly read section of this leaflet and um, so definitely trying to improve the communication in these to make them more patient orientated and reduce the negative expectations um, could be quite an easy and also a cheap intervention um, to help reduce kind of this nocebo response as well you talked a little bit about the influence of the media. I'm wondering um, whether any studies um, done or are you aware of any research uh, around the use of internet fora where people are perhaps connecting with each other around uh, experiencing a particular illness or a disorder and then medications associated with that and then talking with themselves around what they're experiencing and how that influences their um, um attribution of side effects or, or, or other experiences? Yeah, that, that's a really good question. Um, as far as I'm aware, no, I haven't come across any study that's that's looked at that, but it is a huge a huge part of it. So even we, when we say we could look at kind of modifying this information in these kind of patient information leaflets, you know, a lot of patients go back home, they go on the internet and they Google their medication, they go on these forums as well. So it's another huge avenue that I think is kind of untapped and hasn't really been 
researched before, which could be a huge way in which people can also, this could also be contributing to this nocebo response as well. Yeah, because I can see that happening with um, particularly, you know, their own experiences. But also if you look at some of the Internet for uh, associated with parenting as well, you know, because often people are looking after their children's medications and, and worrying about what the impacts of, of that might be. Um, and you hear all sorts of stuff around, you know, vaccinations and all, all the rest of it, where people can um, have quite um, poor information and making quite big decisions on the basis of, of really poor information. So I wonder about the amplica- amplification effect of that. Yeah, uh, I mean, uh, one of um, my colleagues, another PhD student, is looking at kind of, um, kind of pe- um, parents' kind of expectations and their beliefs about the child flu vaccine and whether or not they get their child vaccinated um to do to, to kind of like looking at kind of whether side effects play kind of an important part in that decision and and so it is yeah another whole kind of way in which um parents could be kind of contributing to this nocebo response as well just from their own expectations and how this influences kind of what they perceive in their child if they get a vaccine or a medication and that kind of thing yeah, that's an interesting point, isn't it? It's like who is who is the gatekeeper um, around this when you're talking about family systems? Because I think the other way, looking uh, one generation up as well, often uh, when people have um, aged parents, where they perhaps are at that interaction with with a GP or or, or in a hospital, often they're also um, involved in that decision-making for that person who is undergoing treatment, who may be aged or, or, or not able to process the information as well as, as they used yeah. to be able to do. So, yeah, it's it's whole systems here, isn't it? It's not just one person. Yeah, it's whole, whole uh, generations of uh, the family that, that could be uh, affected by this. So, um, yeah, it's important that we try and find ways to try and communicate this information in like the best way as possible without kind of causing any unnecessary or over-the-top negative expectations of kind of potential side effects to any medication. And that's it for this week's show. Uh, do remember we've got the whole of season one for you to listen to. There's 10 shows plus the first show of season two too. If you want to help the show, please leave a re- review on iTunes. That really helps people to find the show and escalates us up into the charts. Um, do find us on Facebook and share the page. Uh, it helps expose our show to new listeners. And if you're on Twitter, do follow at WCWTP or me, Saab Johal, at Saab, S-A-R-B, on Twitter too. Uh, you can retweet and talk about the show on Twitter, and that helps to get us in front of new listeners too. We really hope you enjoy the show this week. Do tune in again next week for the third show in this second season. Thanks again for listening. Who cares? What's the point?